Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Brightsis. Thank you for listening. An Irish wake is as much a celebration of life as a time for grieving. The joyous spirit and camaraderie of this Irish tradition is center stage in a new play with music opening at the Shakespeare Tavern on Sunday. Later in the program, we'll hear about The Wake from playwright Vinnie Maley, director Mira Hirsch, and composer-music director Scott DePoy. First, we've known for a long time now that Atlanta's food scene goes far beyond barbecue and fried chicken. Our city has food offerings as diverse as its population. And with that in mind today, we debut Atlanta's Savory Stories, a new series about our area's rich culinary history, some restaurants and recipes to try at home. So, here are culinary historian Akila McConnell and chef Asata Reed for May being Asian American Pacific Islander Month. This episode focuses on Atlanta's Chinese American food community. Akila begins with some history. One of the most common misconceptions I hear as a culinary historian focused on Atlanta is this idea that Chinese cuisine in Atlanta is a relatively new concept. You know, we hear a lot about America's historic Chinese communities in places like New York and San Francisco, but not in Atlanta. But the reason that there was an influx of Chinese immigration nationwide in the 1800s also impacted Atlanta. And that reason was, of course, the railroad. Akila, wasn't Atlanta founded around the railroads? Yes, it absolutely was. Um, we are certainly a transportation city. We got our start because of the railroads and uh, have continued to grow because of the uh, airport. But uh, those railroads also impacted the Chinese population in the United States. So a super quick historic background is that, you know, take your mind back to the 1800s, 
while the Civil War was taking place on the East Coast over in California between 1863 to 1869, there were workers building the Transcontinental Railroad. Now, this would be the first railroad stretch that would connect the East Coast to the West Coast. And it was a 1911 miles long. Um, the men who financed the operation became extremely wealthy. For example, uh, founder Leland Stanford actually went on to found Stanford University. But um, the thousands of workers who actually built the Transcontinental Railroad they were paid minimal wages, treated brutally, and worked in treacherous conditions. And more often than not, they were also Chinese immigrants. By 1865, 90% of the Transcontinental Railroad workers were Chinese immigrants, or approximately 15 to 20,000 young men. And of course, you know, Atlanta, like you said, Asada, was this railroad hub, uh, both pre-Civil War as well as post-Civil War. So in 1869, four years after the Civil War ended, the Southern Railroads approved the use of Chinese workers on the railroads. I can't imagine what life would have been like for those Chinese railroad workers here in Atlanta. It, it was very different. I mean, imagine that you're coming to a city that has been ravaged by war and right. um, is being newly built up, but there was also a lot of opportunity for um, these immigrant entrepreneurs. And by early 1903, uh, these Chinese workers had established what at the time the newspapers called the Atlanta Chinatown. Um, it, it wasn't huge, it was pretty small, uh, about a general store, Chinese grocer. There were quite a few laundry shops and there were chop suey restaurants. Um, and there's one entrepreneur, Asada, that I really wanna share the story and his name was Joe Jung. So um, Joe Jung in 1907, he was the proprietor of two Chinese restaurants in downtown Atlanta. And I, I really kind of think of him as the founder of Atlanta's Chinese restaurant scene. He owned the Chop Suey restaurant on Alabama Street and the Oriental Cafe on Ponce de Leon. Uh, and he was considered really the leader of the Chinese community. Uh, in addition to being very successful with his restaurants, he was a member of St. Mark's Church um, in Midtown. Um, and he had actually married a white woman and the couple had three children. His wife was very proud of her husband. Um, she once said in the newspaper, you know, I married him because I loved him and he was a good man. I don't care what people say about me. Uh, he was a super resourceful business owner. He developed his restaurant business as one of the top restaurants in Atlanta. And um, actually by 1916, you know, there was another newspaper article um, saying that all the high society girls would rather be seen in a chop suey emporium than at the local soda shops. Oh, wow. So he was like a social influencer way before social media. Oh, yeah. And not just a social influencer. He was also a political influencer. Mm. Um, so in 1913, Joe Jung, he took his uh, leadership and basically petitioned the city of Atlanta to integrate his mixed race children into the schools. Now, I, I want you to just 
think about this time period. This is 1913. We are at the height of Jim Crow laws in the South. I mean, this is this is truly the point where um, it is illegal for a black person and a white person to walk down the same sidewalk at the same time in the city of Atlanta. And he says, I expect my children to be accepted into the school. He actually petitioned for three years. The first two years, his petition was rejected. And then a California law came out and the state of Georgia followed that California law. And the decision that they made was that uh, children of white women and men who are not black may be considered white. So that actually meant that Joe Jones' children, they had his last name, but they were able to receive all the services of white children, such as attending school. Um, and when he won this, he, you know, it was front page news. Uh, he was incredibly well known, you know, because of his efforts, but it also just continued fueling the success of his restaurants as well. That's that's fascinating. That is amazing. Tell me a little bit more about his restaurants. What was, was he doing, like a Chinese-American fusion? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. He certainly was doing what today we would consider Chinese-American fusion. His restaurants were the first to introduce Chinese cuisine to Atlanta. And it, it honestly isn't all that different than what you might find on a menu today. His main food, his, um, I don't know what you would call it, his specialty dish, let's say, was chop suey. And that dish has a really interesting history behind it. You know, historians don't know exactly where this dish came from. Some people say that it's actually, it means just a pile of leftovers. Um, and some cooks started just stir frying leftovers together. Uh, but it is basically today what we would consider a stir fry. I mean, it's noodles mixed with vegetables and um, meats. And I mean, you can find chop suey on many Atlanta Chinese American restaurant menus today. He also served a bird's nest soup. Uh, that was a, like a specialty item. And he would serve duck eggs. And he also would serve something called yakamane. And yakamane is, again, one of these Chinese-American um, fusion dishes. And I, I don't know, Asada, do you, have you heard of yakamane yeah. before? Well, in New Orleans, again, the Chinese railroad workers set up shop. They set up restaurants. And in New Orleans, you'll find yakami. Yakami is just how the New Orleans folks, you know, they pronounce it. But it's um, basically a, a New Orleans kicked up version of yakamane. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's kind of that interesting fusion of both West African and Chinese flavors. So all of those dishes he would be serving, and I'm sure he served many more. Um, he was particularly proud of serving both American as well as Chinese specialties. Um, unfortunately, Joe Jung was uh, tragically murdered in 1917, uh, but you can still see his tombstone in Atlanta at Westview Cemetery, um, and it contains both uh, English and Chinese lettering on it. Oh, that's right over here on the West End. I'm going to have to go check that out. 
Yeah, no, actually, uh, Westview Cemetery has quite a tidy little um, Chinese cemetery, and it is the mm. oldest cemetery portion that has many of these individuals, these early railroad workers and restaurateurs and entrepreneurs, um, and you can find it right over in Westview. I love how you bring history alive, Akila. I just, I adore it. <laughs> no, well, thank you. And, you know, I got to say, the part I find so fascinating here is you can see, you know, in these early 1900s, the city of Atlanta really didn't know what to do with these Chinese entrepreneurs because the city had this very strict racial dichotomy. There were Black people and there were white people. And men like Joe Jung kind of, they didn't know what to do. And so in the 1950s and 1960s, the city started moving Chinese restaurants out into the segregated neighborhoods. So um, there's historic evidence of chop suey restaurants open on Auburn Avenue, which is of course, Atlanta's historic Black Mecca, um, you know, that is where Dr. King grew up. Um, and he probably ate at some of these uh, restaurants. So as these restaurants continued, you know, you often hear people say that the Olympics created the internationalization of Atlanta. But I mean, really and truly, Atlanta's Chinese community was expanding in both the 1970s and the 1980s, you know, way before the Olympics. I mean, what we're talking about is 100, 150 years of uh, Chinese Atlantans living in our city and contributing to it. Yeah, and I think maybe the revelations that folks are having are, are coming because, you know, when we talk about Chinese food, you know, like Friday night takeout, sesame chicken, beef and broccoli, shrimp romaine, it falls under a really broad stroke. And I've come to learn that that broad stroke is Chinese American food. And yes, they have roots in Chinese cooking, but I mean, think about it. China is massive with over 300 living languages and dialects. So you mean to tell me that 1.4 billion people in different regions with different terrain are all making Kung Pao chicken exactly the same way? Of course not. So I think the lens through which we view Chinese food in America has gained finer focus as we, a nation state community, drop that homogenous autopilot that a lot of American culture runs on. As we have expanded our boundaries and mindsets to be more global, we've stopped whitewashing cultures and began exploring and accepting their traditions, nuances, and diversity. And I think social media can actually take a lot of credit for making our world a smaller place. I actually follow a, a ton of cooks all over the world, and I'm always inspired by people's specificity, by their uh, regional cuisines. And I think now that we are more aware of this, as diners, we can look for more authenticity when eating out. And it's not to put one cuisine over another, but to be able to enjoy the nuances of all of them. Um, a really interesting look at this intersection between immigration and business is in the documentary, The Search for General Tso's Chicken. My family alone has probably eaten thousands of pounds of General Tso's chicken. It's one of our favorites and it's uniquely Chinese American. One, one of the parts in the film, which came out in 2014, they take General Tso's chicken to China where everybody's kind of like, what is this? <laughs> Like this doesn't, no, I don't recognize this dish at all. Um, and the film shows the history of Chinese immigration, like you were just illustrating for us, 
and the development of Chinese American cuisine. It explains why you can get something like General Tso's chicken or sesame chicken just about anywhere in America and they basically taste the same. It's interesting um, because we know different cooks in the kitchen can always make variations on things, but when you see how the uh, food was essential to building community, Chinese communities as these immigrants settled into the United States. It's just a really great film to check out. Um, I saw it on Netflix a couple of years ago. So I recommend checking that out when you get a chance. That was Chef Asata Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell. Our food contributors to the new series, Atlanta Savory Stories. We'll be back with more of that conversation in a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. If you are just tuning in, we've been listening to our new food series, Atlanta's Savory Stories. City Lights food contributors, culinary historian Akila McConnell, and chef Asata Reed have been looking at Atlanta's Chinese-American food community. Here, Akila discusses the first time she experienced authentic Chinese cuisine. My Chinese food revelation was actually going to China. You know, my husband and I, we traveled around China for about a, a month. And you know, this was back in 2008. And, you know, like you, I had, you know, Golden Buddha, that was the place. Like, I mean, when <laughs> I was in college here in Atlanta, that's where we used to eat. And we went there and that was my first time. I mean, we had dumplings like I have never had before. I mean, just so delicate. The wrappers were mm. so thin and so flavorful. And, you know, xiaolongbo, which is um, soup dumplings mm -hmm. and all of this food that I was blown away. I was just stunned by the complexity, by the variation. Yes. And I kept thinking to myself, like, why don't we have this in the U.S.? Um, right. You know, I, I need more of this in my life. And it's, it's a Pandora's box. Honestly, once you open it up, you're like forever in search of of flavor. You're forever in search of specialty. You're forever in search of nuance in, in Chinese cooking. So like that, that first initial experience at the wedding feast, 
fine-tuned my lens and I began exploring more inside of that broad stroke that we called Chinese food. And I learned there was Cantonese and Szechuan and Hunan and Taiwanese and all these different flavor profiles and cooking methods. And even the dumplings would differ from restaurant to restaurant. I just had to get it out of my cozy comfort zone and do some searching and at times some driving. Like in my house, we are not opposed to driving 40 minutes to get barbecue duck from Ming's in Gwinnett. Okay, so no problem. <laughs> That's not a problem. I'm going. Not 40 minutes, no problem. And I just had a recent experience at Way um, in Marietta. I was actually up there for a basketball tournament and the most wonderful Mapo tofu and soup dumplings just just ran up on it. It's been there, but I didn't know. And so I'm still discovering. And it's just one of the things I love to do with my spare time is ride around finding new places to eat. This is this is why we get along because we do the same thing. And you know what I, I got to say, my kids, because I've got two of them that like hands down any any day of the week they'll be like are we getting dumplings and yes. if we're getting dumplings then we get it from high uh which i don't know if you've had the dumplings at high it's over in decatur kind of tucked into that shopping center uh where the walmart is and their dumplings are just spectacular oh i know exactly what you're talking about i looked at their menu they were closed and i looked at their menu and was really impressed by the variety and it just, it really resonated like, oh, the food here is going to be great. <laughs> yeah. And you know, one thing that's really unique about their restaurant is they also do a number of vegan dishes. I mean, this is, you know, something else that we have a tendency not to think about is that uh, China has a long tradition of veganism. And so they have, you know, mock meats. And mm -hmm. so um, Hai actually serves uh, a vegan Peking duck occasionally. I, they don't have it on their mm -hmm. menu all the time. But then there's also Harmony Vegetarian Chinese, right. uh, which is over on Beaufort Highway. And that's a 100% um, vegetarian restaurant. And I swear to you, some of the foods that they serve there, you would not know that you were not eating meat. Yes, that, that has been a favorite for a long time. I think for our field research into all things dumplings, we need to go on a dim sum date. <laughs> I'm talking I, 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 bao, bean paste, rice rolls, love rice rolls. They're like a free form dumpling, but that texture is to die for. And I'm going to talk about texture in a minute because I think that's why dumplings are so beloved. But we should hit up either Oriental Pearl or Canton House. Those are dim sum meccas or Atlanta forever. Um, but I also found dim sum heaven. Um, it's in a strip mall on Beaufort Highway, and it's got all your dim sum favorites right off a of menu. So no rolling carts. You just order what you want. And that yeah. would be a great date. I think we need to make I got to tell you, though, I, I'm old fashioned. Oriental Pearl is that's my choice. I like yeah. to just go there and go with the kids. and Whatever they bring out is going to be delicious. Yes. It's like no <laughs> questions asked. I love that place. But speaking of dumplings, um, I know that homemade dumplings can kind of be a daunting task, um, but it can totally be done, especially with the help from some friends or family. You know, the African proverb that says many hands make light work. Well, that is especially true when it comes to making things like dumplings or pasta or shucking corn or shelling peas, the more the merrier. But when it comes to making dumplings, I always say you should plan to make a lot. First of all, they're delicious and everyone's gonna eat more than what they think they are. And then second, many dumplings freeze well. 
or at least the filling will. So make a lot and then you can make more dumplings later. So I've got seven tips that will help your dumpling making adventure be successful. So grab the husband, grab the kids, grab the neighbors, grab the friends, and let's roll out some dumplings. My first tip is whether you're making your homemade wrapper or using store-bought, keep the dough moist. Just take a clean kitchen towel and lay it over your dumpling pile or your wrapper pile just to keep them from drying out. Once they dry out, they start to tear and rip and you can't make your pretty little crimps. Asada, let me, let me ask you a question on that because I, I have to be honest with you in that I am not usually making my own dumpling wrapper. Do you make your own dumpling wrapper? I do not. And the reason that I don't is just has everything to do with time. When I get in the mood where I'm like, hey, I'm going to make dumplings, I just need to get to it and <laughs> get to stuffing. I've definitely seen it done. And I would recommend anyone check out Chinese Cooking Demystified on YouTube. Very authentic recipes, very well done and honoring tradition, but just kind of a modern pace. A beautiful example of making dumpling skins, if you will, is right over there. And I actually like to get my dumpling wrappers at a couple of different places. Um, actually, Northern China Eatery, which makes exceptional dumplings, they mm. do occasionally sell their dumpling wrappers in their freezer section. They also sell pre-made dumplings and they those are also in the freezer uh, but I also really like first oriental market um that actually opened up back in 1984 kind of the original Asian market in Atlanta you know way before H Mart and all of that right. um and that, uh, that's it's indicator right, next, right yeah it's a data yeah. right right, right next door to your DeKalb farmers yes. market so you can go over there, get your dumpling wrappers. They also sell those green tea Kit Kat bars, which I love. <laughs> um, and then you can run over to the farmer's market and, you know, get, get yeah, all your, your veggies or your meats or whatever you need. Yes. So yeah, I definitely recommend, you know, keeping them in the freezer so that when you get the urge to make dumplings, you've already got your wrappers. My second tip is don't overstuff them. They're kind of like tacos in that sense like you think more is better but no then everything just falls out so you really only want to fill each dumpling skin about two two thirds of the way so that all of your deliciousness stays inside not only is it sad when your dumplings tear but a lot of times the savory and juicy and meaty ingredients working in harmony on the inside you want to keep them in there so that you have all those flavors and juiciness all together. So once your dumplings tear, things can fall out, your meat can dry out. It's just not as much fun. Another tip, I always say, keep your filling chilled, especially if you're working with meat, because meat dumplings, and, and it's kind of like sausage, sausage and dumpling fillings, there's a fat ratio that's involved in there. And you want to keep that fat cold until it's time to cook. That way, the interior of your dumpling stays that kind of springy, moist, juicy texture and not crumbly like how a meatball feels. If you're going to fry your dumplings, keep crispy dumplings crispy, which means keep them with their crispy sides up in the pan and keep them crispy side up when you serve them. Um, don't cover them with towels because they'll steam. And my favorite way to cook them is more of a pan sear, pot sticker style. Uh, you just start with enough oil to coat the pan, arrange your dumplings, and then don't move them. You've got to get that golden brown crust started at the bottom. That golden brown crust, I'm with you. That's the- it's everything. <laughs> yes. I mean, I do love my steamed dumplings and I do love 
um, like dumplings or wontons, they go into soups and broths. I love that soft, delicate texture, but the, the pan seared ones where you sear them and then you steam them, it's just a combination of textures and flavors that is delicious. By searing them at the bottom, you get that Maillard reaction where you get the caramelization and the development of that flavor. And then once they're nice and brown, you just add a few tablespoons of water and immediately put a lid on and then steam them for about three, three to five minutes, depending on how thick your wrapper is. That is gonna create that tender steamed kind of side on your pot stickers. And then you've got that wonderful kind of crimping in the, in the wrinkles in the folds is gonna create a whole nother, almost a pastry texture. So after they've steamed for a few minutes, take the lid off and let the water just evaporate out. You'll have the crispy bottom, the tender sides and those folds, which are like sauce savers. <laughs> and it's a whole party in your mouth. So that's my favorite way of cooking them. I love it. I, I can't complain about that. That sounds absolutely delicious. I'm like, a fan as well. <laughs> Uh, when you're making your mix, you don't want, even though we want moisture from fat, you don't necessarily want moisture from your vegetables because that will make for soggy dumplings, which is just the opposite of what we're talking about here. So two things you can do, you can either salt your vegetables in, in a colander and kind of let them sit and then squeeze them with a kitchen towel to squeeze out the ex excess moisture. Or you can add a little cornstarch or breadcrumbs to your dumpling mix and that can soak up the extra water in your veggies. And these are veggies that kind of, they're, they're crisp tender, but you know, bok choy, cabbages, um, even mushrooms. Mushrooms have a high water content. So it's something you wanna keep in mind. And another tip is you wanna make your filling really flavorful because the wrappers themselves don't have a lot of flavor and that's intentional. The flavors on the inside and the flavors in the sauce or broth um, that the dumplings are gonna go into. So I always like to cook off a little bit of my filling just to see what the flavor profile is going to be. And my little secret, instead of adding additional salt to the interior is I love to add fresh ginger. I love the pop that it gives to either vegetables or meats or both when they're wrapped up in dumpling format. That's just a taste preference on my end. Some people like to make it a little spicy on the inside. Some people will add a splash of vinegar, but the point is that you want to have these wonderful, bold flavors inside. I think that makes so much sense. So of course, the million dollar question is, what do you dip your dumplings in? Because that's the final touch, right? It is. Well, it's almost the final touch. Um, my last tip is you want to choose the right wrapper. I'm a fan of round wrappers because I like pot stickers and that gives me more dough to work with. I can get the pleats and the crimps in there, which are essential for grabbing sauce, just like texture on pasta. But the square wonton wrappers work absolutely perfect if you're just wanting to run through, make some dumplings, um, because you can just uh, moisten the tips your, of your fingers, run along the sides and fold. You just wanna make sure to push out any air bubbles because you don't want your dumplings to uh, rip open when they're either being fried, steamed, boiled, or whatever it is you're gonna do with them. But to the sauce, sauce can be so simple. It could be, equal parts rice vinegar and soy sauce. It could be a little more complex. I like to use black vinegar with a little honey or brown sugar, soy sauce, and some chili oil diluted slightly with water. It gives me spicy, sweet, savory, vinegary all in one dip and I could just pretty much drink it. But I love to pour it over something that's got uh, enough texture to kind of hold on to that. Chili oil, just drizzled over dumplings in and of itself is, is a statement, period, full stop. 
But I want to give a shout out to Natalie King, who is the CEO of Chinese Southern Bell, because they make an award winning or several award winning finishing sauces. And one of my favorites is their My Sweet Hottie Sauce. It is perfect to dip with dumplings because it's a little sweet and it's a little spicy. And Chinese Southern Bell kind of perfectly illustrates what we've been talking about, this evolution of Chinese culture in Atlanta. Um, Natalie is Georgia grown. She's a Smyrna girl, born and raised. And her company, besides making gourmet specialty foods, also does Asian market tours and cooking demonstrations, which promotes Chinese cultural awareness with Southern roots, with real Georgia roots. They're building bridges within communities right here in Atlanta through and using food as sort of the educational format. So if you get a chance, I know Kroger carries their sauces, um, Whole Foods carries their sauces, but Chinese Southern Bell has um, array of sauces that are great for finishing, for putting on fried chicken wings, for putting on noodles, for putting on anything. But definitely check out that My Sweet Hottie sauce. My kids love it. Food contributor Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell. You can find more information about our new food series, Atlanta Savory Stories, on our website, wabe.org. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Sarah Lamb. I'm a jewelry maker. I work out of my home studio in North Georgia and regularly participate in pop-up shops and artisan markets all around the Atlanta area. I've always been into minimal, meaningful jewelry that I can wear every day, so it's been the best experience to learn how to create these pieces myself. My business has truly allowed me to be an artist where I'm able to have creative freedom in every aspect. Most of my pieces come from spiritual or astrological inspiration, so there can be a lot of meaning behind them. We've recently released our angel number ring, where we hand stamp your angel number. This number is generally the number that is always revealing itself in your life. Whenever you open up your phone, do you notice the time to always be right at 444? This could be your angel number. But ultimately, it's all up to the person that's wearing the jewelry to really put the significance with the piece. It has been very rewarding to be able to connect with a community that understands the why behind my pieces and my work. When I am looking for art inspiration around Atlanta, I love visiting the High Museum of Art when there are special exhibits that pop up or just simply driving around Atlanta to see the mini murals. You can always find my work online at www.hellorising.com. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram or TikTok at Hello Rising for plenty of behind-the-scenes footage and announcements. Our series, Speaking of the Arts. Coming up, we'll hear about The Wake, a new play with old Irish songs, opening at the Shakespeare Tavern this Sunday. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. A traditional Irish wake toast goes, may your heart 
be light and happy, may your smile be big and wide, and may your pockets always have a coin or two inside. Irish wakes and funerals are often celebrations of a person's life. Music, poetry, and merriment are shared by friends and family, sometimes for days at a time. Playwright Vinnie Maley always wanted to go to an Irish wake, so she wrote one, The Wake, a new play with old Irish songs will be performed at the Shakespeare Tavern starting Sunday evening, May 8th. Vinnie Maley with co-creator, music director, and composer Scott Depoy and director Mira Hirsch join me now via Zoom to talk more about the show. Welcome to City Lights. Glad to be here. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. For those unfamiliar with the traditional Irish wake, how does it unfold? All these friends are gathered, friends and mourners are gathered together to see their old friend off. And as you said, it's a celebration of life as well. And it's set in present time, but in, it's a very traditional wake. And in the old days, they would stay up all night. And that's why they called it a wake. They stayed up all night. These would last for a day or more to make sure that uh, the deceased didn't wake. That's why they call it a wake. And so, of course, with the drinking, that's a good part of the Irish wake and the food and the friendship. There's a, a lot of banter and some old wounds might be uncovered. They get a little punch drunk as well. Or what is it? Poteen, poitine, if you're fancy, they say. <laughs> but we see what transpires by the end of the evening or early morning. So, Vinny, this celebration of life is what enthralled you about an Irish way? Yes, and it's something that everyone can relate to, and different traditions do have a lot of similarities. And The music creates a sense of unity, and I was reading this book on joyfulness while I was creating the show, and they talked about the physiological effects of, of music and how it creates a collective effervescence. And I thought, oh, well, that's what we're trying to create with this, especially now, it came out of the times during the pandemic and so much divisiveness. This is something we we all can relate to. One of the old Irish songs performed in the play is called Finnegan's Wake. What's the backstory to that song? That's a, a, an Irish street ballad from the mid-1800s. Obviously, uh, James Joyce was uh, particularly fascinated by this song because to him, it represented birth, life, death, and resurrection all in one five-minute street ballad, I think, from Dublin. Truth, I tell you, I'm lots of fun and finicky. 
So it's a fascinating story. It's funny, but it do, really does cover the waterfront as far as a man's life and he dies and then he's resurrected again. So it's a great jumping off point for this play. And then uh, Vinny has done some unbelievably clever things in reworking the song that you'll just have to come to the show and find out what it is. Very <laughs> clever though. To Scott's point, I read that in Irish tradition, the day someone dies is their third birthday. With the first birthday, their actual birth, the second being baptism, and the third when they enter the kingdom of heaven. Right. So three birthdays. Yeah, it's very, it's very cool. I, I think the thing that appeals to me is that the Ireland is a country that's so steeped in tradition. And I am a very tradition-oriented kind of guy. So I, I, I love all of those sayings and the um, philosophies and the proverbs that the Irish have. Mira, can you talk a bit about the setting and backdrop of the play? We know it's awake, but I wondered if audience participation is encouraged. It is definitely encouraged in many places. The setting is supposed to be set in, in the home of the deceased. However, it works really well in the setting where we're going to be, which is in the Shakespeare Tavern. Audiences will be at, at tables. You know, they'll be able to be eating and drinking as you would be at a wake. You know, the actors enter through the house and greet the audience as if they are the mourners as well. And they are uh, asked to sometimes sing along, sometimes dance along. They're even asked if they want to get up and speak about the deceased, though it might be interesting if one of them decides to actually do that. <laughs> <laughs> and Mira, I wondered with your experience in Jewish theater, as well as being Jewish, if directing this play is informed in any way by your own heritage? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I was talking about this just the other day. I think it was with you, Scott, about was, how, yeah. yeah, some of the traditions in, in working on this piece, I realized some of the similarities, you know, comparing Awake with a Shiva, you know, how they're both a way for people to gather and to mourn the loss of this person, but also to celebrate the person's life and tell stories about the person that's uh, often encouraged at a, at a Shiva. And it's, it's also partially uh, like a, a religious service and practice, but it's also a very social gathering centered around food and drink. And uh, Vinny even has one line, where one of the characters is talking to someone in the audience and basically says, oh, oh, you didn't actually know the guy. You're just here for the, for the food. And, <laughs> and let's just say that, you know, there's always one of those somewhere at a Shiva too. Oh, you, you really didn't know him that well, did you? No, you're just here for the food. And that just made me laugh, you know, because I, I saw the similarity there. And there, the, the tradition covering the mirrors during Awake, and that really got to me. I had no idea, you know, that's so steeped in Jewish tradition is, is to cover all the mirrors during the period of mourning. And, and even the tradition of sitting with 
the body, you know, very observant Jews do not, you know, they have somebody stay with the body until the burial. Of course, burial happens very quickly um, in Jewish tradition, but also the more traditional people will not, you know, leave the body. Someone has to be there, I, I, probably for different reasons, but um, yeah, there were so many things. And, and, you know, just sort of just the overall sensibility of, of the laughter through tears. And I, I just think that's a real commonality, perhaps, um, between Jewish culture and Irish culture. They might lean a little more towards the laughter in the Irish culture than we do. I don't know. But just, you know, the, that whole sort of melancholy and the laughter through tears and the importance of music in the culture as well. Yeah, these shared traditions of community and grieving as one, the support derived from that. I also was fascinated to read about that tradition of covering the mirrors because I thought that was strictly a Jewish tradition. Right. And, of course, to the music. Scott, I know you are immersed in the genre of Irish music, Celtic music. What is it that so enamors you? On a practical note, if I may, uh, I think it's partially because so many of their things are in minor keys. <laughs> and I really, really love minor keys. But I also think that Irish music, Celtic music, strikes a chord in me, in my heart. And I think it does for a lot of people. And I'm not really sure why that is. I mean, my nationalities are, are French and Danish. <laughs> But Celtic music has always struck a real chord somewhere deep inside of me. And I, I think it's because of the sort of universality of their melodies. Uh, somebody said that Irish music contains some of the most heartbreakingly beautiful melodies in Western music. And I really think that's true. It comes from the heart. It speaks to the heart. And I think just their whole sensibility uh, lyrically and melodically are universal to people. I also find that you find evidence of Celtic sounding music in like early Nordic music in, in Spain, in Galicia. There are bands that sing in Spanish, but sound like Irish bands. So I think that the Irish influence has spread out over the world. So maybe it wasn't just St. Brendan that got into that leather boat, but I think a lot of people did. <laughs> ah, the Celtic diaspora. Interesting also when you say that it's heartbreaking music and a lot of it is, and there are a lot of songs around the wake, but also I think of it as so joyful. I just can't be, you know, I have to be happy when I'm listening to Irish music, Then you, especially when you all bring out the instruments of Bodron and dulcimer and tin whistle and harp. And um, it, it may be heartbreaking, but happy too. Scott, I know you and Vinny co-wrote an original song for the play. What traditional songs will we hear? Vinny and I collaborated on one song for the show, but we'll also be doing Star of the County Down, Parting Glass, Mountain Dew, the Irish version. Finnegan's Wake. Well, in the co-show, the audience will be encouraged to join us for Rattlin' Bog, which is really fun. Rattlin' Bog, great song, mm -hmm. great pub song. 
great, great pub song. And we do some original takes or some parodies, but we had fun with the music also. Uh, we're singing Danny Boy, Spencer Stevens singing Danny Boy, a beautiful version of that, so. Of course, we have to. Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen and down the mountainside. The summer's gone and all the roses falling. It's you, it's you must go and I must bide. But come ye back when summer's in the meadow or when the valley is hushed and white with snow it's i'll be here in sunshine or in shadow oh danny boy oh danny boy i love you so these people are not just actors they are legitimate musicians who play a multitude of instruments it's really astonishing and it's um yeah it's it's so much of what the show is 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 this group of people together singing and and playing it's beautiful I mean, that also creates a more intimate atmosphere, I think, and, and draws the audience in. Indeed. What do you think people from other cultures learn from the Irish way of sending off loved ones? Well, and especially in this play, of course, it's sad and there's a loss, but our loved ones are never really gone. They're here with us in different ways and memories live on and traits and characteristics and that's not a bright side but try to trying to lighten lighten this up it's something for me to hold on to i realized you know after the passing of my father all of a sudden oh that's my father in me that's my father that's my father good and bad <laughs> but um i i think that's probably universal, but especially with the celebration like a wake is. I agree with that. I, I believe that it is the bright side. And I think something that we can all learn from the Irish tradition of a wake is there's a sorrow for sending the person off, but there's a joy too, because as Vinny says, they're never really gone. You know, as long as we remember them and the, the things that they've done and the things that they've said, there's, there's a story where somebody asks this witch if she can bring somebody back to life and if there's a spell for that. And the witch says, I'm sorry, there's not. But why don't you tell me about them? Because that's the magic. And the, the girl says, will that bring them back to life? And the witch says, for a minute, it will. Oh, that's wonderful. It's life affirming in the end. Because it, it, it's everything that, that life is. It's it's sorrow and joy and, you know, storytelling and remembrance and, you know, what are the gifts this person gave us? And even just the fact that all these people come together around the loss of this person, it's about community. Sometimes it has to be the loss of someone that brings everyone else together, but that's in a way a, a joyful thing too. 
I'm glad I'm left with something of my father other than just his name, Vinnie. <laughs> Playwright Vinnie Maley, composer, music director Scott Depoy, and director Mira Hirsch. The Wake, a new play with old Irish songs, is on stage at the Shakespeare Tavern this Sunday evening and continuing in May. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we're joined by the filmmaker behind Seeds of Resilience. This series highlights experiences of Black agrarians in Atlanta. Plus, the traveling living room performance, Calf from Out of Hand Theater. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate, and thanks.